The rest of us are going to be in Matthew 27 this morning, and so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there once again. And this morning we're going to talk about the immediate effects of Christ's death. And I stress the immediate effects of Christ's death, because usually when we think of the effects of Christ's death, we think of those great spiritual realities like justification, or we think of redemption, or we think of sanctification, those those great spiritual realities that Christians love to meditate upon, uh, those great spiritual realities that we love to sing about and talk about. I love to talk about those things. But it's not what we're going to do today because we're going to talk about the immediate effects of Christ's death. That is to say, what happened right then and right there after He died as a result of His death. What happens in what took place immediately following His death, the historical events. And as we do so, we'll be able to highlight seven supernatural occurrences. Seven supernatural effects or occurrences that are tied to the death of Christ. And we'll look at these in verses 51 to 66 in just a moment. But before we get to them, uh, let me remind you about what's happening. We're in Matthew 27. That means we're in the context of the crucifixion. That means it's Passover time in Jerusalem, which means the city is teeming with people. It is, it is overpopulated. Everyone has a re- religious zeal because it's Passover time. And so there's all of this excitement and enthusiasm. And Christ is crucified. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at the actual crucifixion. Christ has died. Even there in verse 50, we see that He voluntarily gave up His life. In verse 45, we saw that darkness supernaturally covered the land, even in the afternoon. In verse 46, based upon what Jesus cries, we saw that Jesus experienced the full, undiluted wrath of God. With those things in mind, we come to these seven supernatural occurrences. I've tried to limit them to one word so I can uh, get uh, things moving. And and for expediency's sake, I do have to tell you that this is two sermons crammed into one, so I'll try to go really fast at times. Uh, I got sick somewhere along the line because I was planning actually to, believe it or not, preach on the resurrection on Easter. I know it's a novel idea, but... (laughs) And so I ended up getting sick somewhere in here, and it's really messed me up. Here I was trying to be, you know, anything but a a grump. I wanted to actually do it on the right day, and it seems kind of anticlimactic to preach on the resurrection the week after Easter. But uh, So we're going to get done one way or another. We did it first hour, so I'll try to to be expedient and quick at times. Seven supernatural occurrences. Uh, We'll give them one name each. Number one, first supernatural event associated with the death of Christ. Number one. Are you ready, my fellow seminarians? Iconoclasm. What an awesome word, don't you think? Iconoclasm. You like that word? I'm going to use the word because I'm trying to use less words, one word points. I'm going to use the word because I love the word. Let me say it again. Iconoclasm. And it's a great, great single word explanation to, to what Jesus does. To be iconoclastic, just think about what the word is. It's to smash icons. It's to destroy icons. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, iconoclasm is the destruction of sacred images or institutions 
And in this case, it's both. The destruction of a sacred image and the destruction of a sacred institution. Iconoclasm. I would ask you to all say it with me just so you have it in your mind, but I won't do it because I don't want to belittle you. But what a great, great word indicating what Jesus does through His death. Look at verse 51 and you'll see. In verse 51 it says, And behold, no doubt that's tied to verse 50 after Jesus voluntarily gives up His life, connected to that, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is iconoclastic. From top to bottom, not from bottom to top. From top to bottom, no human being did this. God did this. From top to bottom, this is a great one for those of you who say you're visual learners. You want to know what the death of Jesus Christ is all about? Well, it's all about a lot of things, but one thing for sure, it was taking the veil in the temple and splitting it down the center from top to bottom. That veil which symbolized so much in the Old Testament world. And I want to talk about that. It's dramatic. It's unmistakable. In Exodus 26, verse 33, it talks about this veil. It separates, in the temple, it separates the holy place and the holy of holies. You can go into the temple, that sacred place, but then there is that veil and you cannot, you dare not go beyond that veil. It's where the high priest could only go once a year. And he went with great danger of losing his life because he's in the very presence of God. Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish Christian historian, describes this veil as 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and the thickness of one's palm, about four inches thick. We can look at Old Testament texts that describe the elaborate nature and the thickness of this veil that separated the Holy of Holies. Another source tells us that it took up to 300 men to install it. It's this massive curtain that in effect says, don't you dare come in here. Because we're talking about the very presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant is, the giving of God's law. And as a direct result of the death of Jesus Christ, connect verse 50 to 51, that veil... Is torn, signifying something huge, huge. James Montgomery Boyce says the veil that divided the holy place from the most holy place pointed to the enormous gulf that existed between the holy God and the people because of their sin. The veil was a way of saying symbolically but also unmistakably, thus far you may come and no further. And here we see the death of Christ removing that obstacle. It's meant to be dramatic. It's meant to be powerful. It's meant to cause us to say, Oh my! And if you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, as much as I like James Montgomery Boyce, his commentary on Matthew 27, 51 is not as good as the book of Hebrews commentary. So if you turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, you'll see this interpreted for us. Now as you're turning to Hebrews 10, let me also remind you, or or not remind you, but tell you that based upon timing, this being in the later afternoon, it's even better. It's even juicier, if you will, because that would have been the time when the priests were in the temple doing sacrifices. 
So can you imagine the priests in there doing their priestly duty at Passover, and there they are doing their sacrifices, and there in this cataclysmic, radical way, something that could not be done otherwise, from top to bottom, crashing apart the veil tears. And I can think of all kinds of creative ways to describe what may have happened to them. But I'll leave that to your imagination. It would have rocked their minds. It would have gotten their attention like nothing would have ever gotten their attention. It would have been the most radical thing imaginable. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, that, that right there is, is almost nonsensical based upon an Old Testament worldview. We have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which He inaugurated for us. How? Through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That's the interpretation of what's going on here. It's through the death of Christ that the veil is torn and where you you could not go, now you can go and you can go there through Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Excuse me, Hebrews 9, verse 26, halfway through that verse. But now, see things have changed. Once at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And the context there is it's not this ongoing sacrificial system anymore, but through His one active sacrifice, sin is put away. There is something dramatic and radical going on here. It's amazing to see. This is why I believe in in what uh, theologians call the doctrine of solus Christus. Christ alone. It's only through Christ. This is why we would say Christ is the temple now. Right? Remember, Jesus is the one who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. And it says he was speaking of his own body. This is the end of Judaism. This is the end of any such thing. This is why it's unthinkable for us to even think about having things like altars or priests. It's unthinkable. This is why it's unthinkable for us to somehow think that the path to Christian maturity is going backward and adopting Jewish ceremonies and Jewish customs. This is totally backward. It's like we're not even paying attention at all to what Christ has done. You might find it interesting, I hope you find it interesting, that in the book of Acts, in the 6th chapter, you don't need to go there for the sake of time, I'll quick go there. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, this is... Birth of the church, things are changing now. Many people converted. It says at the end of of the verse, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I like the sound of that. Well, it's no wonder. They knew what happened in the Holy of Holies. They knew what happened with with, with the tearing of the veil. And, and, And it rocked their whole world. And what are they doing now? They're becoming, by the grace of God, obedient to the faith. They're believing in Christ. Well, for those of you who think somehow the path to spiritual maturity as a Christian is to go backward into Judaism, adopting customs and traditions and so on and so forth, I would love it if you could have a personal conversation with one of those converted priests. Because I think they would grab you by the ear and shake you. 
and say, what in the world do you think you are doing? How can you be so ignorant? What Christ did on the cross fulfilled all of those sacrificial requirements and therefore put an end to all of them. He is the great high priest. He's the great one. It's amazing for us to see. It's so good for us to see this. I just want to talk about this. This is just enough in and of itself, but we must move on. Number two, a second supernatural event associated with the death of Christ that highlights his supremacy. Number two, limiting it to one word, earthquake. Earthquake. And earthquake, look at verse 51 where it goes on to say, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. I don't think earthquakes are miracles because a miracle is something that cannot be explained naturally. Earthquakes can be explained naturally, but God works providentially, different than miraculously, to bring about earthquakes. And I do think that the timing on this one is miraculous. This isn't a random earthquake. This is Jesus dying on the cross, voluntarily giving up his life. Then we've got the tearing of the veil, and then the earth is shaking. It's not coincidence, not good luck, not bad luck. God's perfect providence, miraculous timing, we've got an earthquake. And earthquakes have a way of getting people's attention. If you've been in an earthquake, you know that that's true. How many of you have been in an earthquake? Yeah, all of a sudden, you know, you have major, major adrenaline going. January 17th, 1994, 4.31 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. I had my attention got <laughs> by the Northridge earthquake. Not the biggest ever, a magnitude was 6.7, but ground acceleration was the highest ever instrumentally recorded in an urban area in North America. $12.5 billion in damage, one of the costliest natural disasters in U.S. history. And let me tell you, I felt the love, brother. <laughs> and it got my attention. But this is not about Northridge. But it is to say, all of these events happening, it is a great exclamation point from God to get everyone's attention, including those priests, including everyone else, including the centurion, everyone to take notice that what has happened here is dramatic and significant. Christ is different. Christ is unique and His death is unique and His death is different. The darkness, the cry, the ripping of the veil, the earthquake. It's kind of interesting. We won't take the time to do it, but if you go to the Old Testament and you have the giving of the Old Covenant to Moses, it came in a thunderous way, loud, scary, frightening. And here in the New Testament, we have the coming of the New Covenant and the shedding of Christ's blood. And it's loud and thunderous coming with an earthquake and scary. Reminds me of John 1.17. The law was given through Moses, thunderously so. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Both rocked the world. The old and the new. But here we see Christ as superior with the new. 
A third supernatural event associated with the death of Jesus that highlights his supremacy. Number three, resurrection. This time, not his resurrection. We'll get to that next week. Remember the context before we read verse 52? Darkness, massive earthquake, and now in verse 52, the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died were raised. Verse 53, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. I read that one at the dinner table a couple nights ago and everybody's going, huh? And I'm thinking to myself, Universal Studios doesn't have anything on the Bible. (laughs) It's at this point in time, you know, my my twisted mind wants to say, I see dead people. (laughs) I mean, I have a jaded enough background in the past. I'm thinking, you know, night of the living dead, return of the living dead, you know, there are people walking around saying brains, you know, and all this kind of thing. Scary zombies. That's not what's happening here, though. It tells us. They're not looking for brains. They're not looking to terrorize people. They're not the things bad dreams are made of. Verse 53, they appeared to many. But in verse 52, they're the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. Dead saints. These are Old Testament saints. They're not there to terrorize people. They're there to testify, right? Testify to the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? Old Testament saints going around from the grave (laughs) testifying to the legitimacy of Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Messiah. Well, I just said they weren't there to terrorize, but you know, a lot of questions come to mind, right? You read that and you go, say what? Here's a list of my questions we won't answer and notice the order of them. It just shows my twistedness. Were the bodies decomposed? (laughs) Was it like in the movies? More seriously, did they die again? Did they resume normal lives? Did they like it or were they happier being left alone in heaven? Were these temporary glorified bodies given to them as a unique event in light of 1 Thessalonians? I don't know. You know what I really want to know? As I want to know, even though I said they weren't there to terrorize, I want to know if John the Baptist rose from the dead. I'd classify him as an Old Testament saint, really. Other side of the cross. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if John the Baptist showed up at Herod's house? Surprise! You know? But it wouldn't have been like that. It would have been like this. He'd be holding his head. Surprise! You know, doing the lip sync thing. Cut his head off. Herod would have had worse dreams than he was already having. Is <laughs> what would have happened. Well, on a more serious level, the reason I think those questions aren't answered is because it's not about any of those things. It's not about those people. Our curiosity is just raging to try to figure out what what all happened, but the point isn't anything to do with them. The point is something really, really amazing happened. People rose from the dead. Old Testament saints coming up out of the grave. This is amazing. What in the world? This has never happened. It points to the greatness of Jesus Christ who has the power over death. It points to his uniqueness. This didn't happen in relationship to any other religious leader. How about this? How dare we even speak the name of Jesus in the same sentence as any other religious leader? How dare we do that? I mean, it's, he's on a plane all... He's in a totally different zip code. He's on a totally different planet. 
He is so unique and superior, and we are to be seeing that right here in this text. We can't explain it. I had a conversation, an interesting conversation with a man on an airplane last Thursday. We had a good conversation, and and I had a Harley Davidson t-shirt on, and before you know it, he wanted to know if I rode motorcycles. We had this great talk, and then, uh, you know, eventually it gets to, so what do you do? I asked him first. Then he said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a Bible teacher. You know, say what? You know, that doesn't match the Harley Davidson t-shirt or the flat bill hat pulled halfway down your face. And uh, what, what, what gives? You're just coming from surfing in Santa Cruz? You know, it was a great lead-in. That's how I want to be, incognito. Uh, all things to all people. Well, that's neither here nor there. But made you laugh a little bit or think I'm crazier than you already think. Anyway, I told him what I did, explaining things to him. And he said, you know what? I'm a Christian. And he said, but I've come to realize, you know, because my girlfriend was uh, Hindu and different things. I've come to realize that whether, uh, no matter the religion, it all gets us to the same God in the end. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's Buddhism or Christianity or Hinduism. And I just said, John, stop, stop. By now, I felt like I could interrupt him. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me, right? You hear what you're saying? I said, you don't really mean to tell me that Jesus Christ is the same as the 330 million gods of Hinduism? You don't, you don't really mean that, do you? You seem like an intelligent guy. And he looked at me like I'd caught him in his ignorance. And his facial expressions, though his words didn't say it, said, you're right, I don't mean to tell you that because I don't really believe that. Jesus Christ isn't even in the same zip code as Ganesh, the elephant god. Jesus Christ has the power over death for all to see and he raises the dead. We should be impressed. We should be amazed. We should be worshiping Him and praising Him because He is altogether different. Number four, another supernatural event associated with the death of Jesus is that highlights, that highlights His supremacy. Number four is conversion. Conversion. Verse 54, this is pretty phenomenal. Now the centurion, and I hate to do it, but I'm going to interrupt a few times here because I'm going to fill in the blanks from the other texts. In the gospel accounts. Now the centurion, now listen to a quote from Mark 15, who was standing right in front of Jesus. Okay, darkness in the afternoon. Now the centurion, who is standing right in front of Jesus. Okay, so feel the, the dramatic effect a little bit. He's right there in front of him. The centurion, the guy who's in charge of killing Jesus, is standing right there. We've had earthquake. We, we've got total darkness that's unexplainable because it's the afternoon. Now let's keep reading. Verse 54, and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, I've got to insert something again, Mark 15, 39, things like, quote, the way he breathed his last. It's kind of interesting that Mark adds that. One of the things, yes, the earthquake was impressive. Yes, the darkness is impressive. But what Mark mentions is, as he's standing in front of Jesus, what he's so amazed by is the way Jesus dies, the way he breathes his last. Here's the centurion who is a master in the art of execution, if that's possible. He's seen who knows how many people die. Remember, thousands and thousands of people were crucified. 
He could write a doctoral dissertation on crucifixion. And what stands out to him? The way Jesus dies. Jesus dies in a way that no one else has died. Well, that fits our text of verse 50, that he voluntarily gives up his life. Remember, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I will lay it down. And the centurion saw it, at least to a degree, for what it was. Right there in front of him, he is enamored with this Jesus. The Jesus who he killed. Then continuing on, it says... He became very frightened. Yeah, I'll bet he did. (laughs) And said, truly, this man was the Son of God. If he's talking in Old Testament talk, truly, he he is the Son of God. The Son of God would mean he's deity. The Son of God would mean he's the eternal one. If you're going to go to Daniel chapter 7, this is an official title for him. He's seeing Jesus for who he really is. I take it he's converted. Some people say, well, maybe not. Maybe it was a temporary kind of thing or whatever. When you look at all the pieces together, I think he was converted, as do others. Because when you add to that, Luke's account, Luke 23, 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. He's there before him. He's so impressed with the way he dies. He sees him as the son of God. He sees him as innocent. And what does he do? He praises God. It's so impressive because who is this guy? This guy's the death expert. This guy, not only is the death expert, this guy is a Roman. Therefore, he's a polytheist. He's a pagan. He's enamored with Jesus. He's amazed by Jesus. He's converted by Jesus. (laughs) Agreeing with God about His Son. Praising God for the greatness of His Son. And by the way, in effect, this is what happens anytime anyone is converted. Hostile to Christ. Through the death of Christ. Redeemed by Christ. Converted by Christ. I love it that God picked the worst guy on the scene to convert. You should love it too. Because it argues from the greater to the lesser. If the centurion standing before Jesus, who was the death expert involved, his hand in killing Jesus, if he could be converted, I don't care if you were a drug dealer or a prostitute or an embezzler or a liar or a religious fanatic. You could be converted by the grace of God. Colossians 1 says this, And although you were formerly, it's talking about people who are currently Christians, not centurions, quote-unquote good people compared to the centurion. You were formerly alienated like the centurion and hostile like the centurion, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds like the centurion. He's talking about people like us. Yet he, Christ, has now reconciled you to his, reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. (laughs) How about that? Through what came by the hands of the centurion, Christ reconciled the centurion to himself. Because ultimately the centurion wasn't in charge. Christ is in charge. Very cool to see. 
If I had time, I'd want to go to John chapter 1 and, and see how it's so amazing and ironic that God converts the centurion, the pagan. If I had time, I'd want to revisit the issue of earthquakes. Remember, the centurion sees the darkness, feels the earthquake, witnesses Jesus' death, is converted. The earthquake plays a role in that. I'd love to tell you the story about a guy I met one time who experienced the same Northridge 94 earthquake. He was one of the engineers in the city of Los Angeles. He designed some of the overpasses and watched them fall almost before his eyes. It was dark, so it wasn't before his eyes. And he was so amazed that someone could be so much smarter than him and more powerful than him and more powerful than any human beings that could do that to his bridge that God used that circumstantially to cause him to ask all the right questions and bring about his conversion. Kind of centurion-like. Let's move on to number five, a fifth supernatural event associated with the death of Jesus, highlighting his supremacy is devotion. It's devotion. Look at verse 55. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Verse 56 says, Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. What's odd about that? Well, I guess what's odd is, you know, I'm looking for all the guys. <laughs> the women are there, and they're, they're devoted to Christ. Yes, they're at a distance but they're devoted to Christ. They're devoted to Christ there when none of the men are there devoted to Christ. At least not the 11 disciples. How about this? Have you ever thought about the fact that eyewitness to his death, the women. Not exclusively, but the women. Eyewitness to his burial, the women. Eyewitness to his resurrection, the women. Last time I checked in 1 Corinthians 15, you know what's really important to Christianity? You know what's just like bedrock important to Christianity? Death, burial, resurrection. And who's there? The women. Okay, if we want to try to impress the first century world with how we're big movers and shakers, we Christians, and we want to try to impress them on a human level with our religion... You know what you're not going to do? Is build the foundation of your religion based upon eyewitness testimony, death, burial, resurrection, based upon the testimony of some women who are looked down on in particular in the culture. You really want to impress people? You're not going to do it this way. And they're faithful. Those ladies are faithful. They're there. They're there for all the major events. You've got to love the way God works. Totally on purpose. Totally on purpose that He would do it this way. This is how God works. This is how, by the way, God worked in the Old Testament. God didn't say, hmm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to find the flashiest, most powerful people group with the biggest military, the greatest population, and I'm going to choose them to be my nation. He found the weakest people group Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. He didn't set on his love on them because there were more number, because they were the fewest people. He chose the weak ones. He chose the few to be his nation. 
God didn't start Christianity, though he could have, uh, based upon the power of a Caesar, based upon the philosophical prowess of a Plato or an Aristotle. He could have done any of those things. Eyewitness testimony, death, burial, resurrection, the three most important things in one sense. I'll choose the women. Not a very wise choice, God. If you're going to put together an effective first century marketing plan, you probably should go to some kind of Barna seminar because <laughs> you're blowing it. I mean, you don't really know what you're doing here. This isn't going to be respected at all, God. This is how God works. This is on purpose because when He's going to build it based upon what we would see as a weak foundation, I'm not trying to be sexist or anything like that, but First Peter chapter 3 does say weak, okay? He's trying to be biblical. Co-heirs. When God builds on a weaker foundation, that sounds better if it's not biblical. When He builds it on a weak foundation, <laughs> it shows how strong He is. He knew what He was doing when He did this. This is the same for us when we're converted. God knows what He's doing when He takes weak people and converts them. That's 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 says in verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Strategic that he did it this way. And that he worked by God's, by his grace in the lives of these women to be the key eyewitnesses. And I am so glad that he did because I don't think, wow, Christianity based upon the greatest philosophical minds to walk the planet. They, those guys are so awesome. I want to buy all of their books. Blah, 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 blah. Not many wise. Not many mighty. Not many noble. And that causes us to say, God, you are great. You, you are so powerful. You are amazing. It's not about any of these people. It's ultimately about you. That should be the response. It should be the right response. It is the right response. It's to demonstrate his power. We see that even in these women's devotion. I'll go on record as saying Christianity is the religion founded on Weak people. I know that's true because I've read First Corinthians 1. It's weak. Why? To show that God is strong. Deuteronomy 7 as well. That's why when people say, you know what, well, you know what we need? What we need is, it, is if this rock star could only become a Christian and then boy, everybody would be saved. Or, or if we could get the politicians to be converted and then, you know, they've got all this influence and sphere and then everyone be, would be converted. Oh, or how about, you know, if we could just get some, uh, you know, actor. If Johnny Depp could only become a Christian, boy, he would make such a big impact. It's not how God works. I'm not saying those people couldn't be converted. I'm not saying it never happens, but God is never going to build His church that way. He chose the women in this case, not even His own disciples. They were weak too, but it's beside the point. Let's move on. Number six, burial. Speaking of Christ's burial, a sixth supernatural event associated with the death of Christ, 
highlighting his supremacy. Number, verse 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And he's a, a complex man, this Joseph of Arimathea. Let me just fill in the blanks a little bit. He's a prominent member of, of, of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's one of the religious leaders. Mark chapter 15, verse 43. He's a Jewish religious leader. Uh, Luke 23, 51 tells us that while he was a Jewish religious leader, he didn't agree with what they did to Jesus. So he was against what they did. Luke also tells us that he legitimately is waiting for the Messianic kingdom, unlike the Jewish religious, religious leaders. John nineteen thirty eight calls him a secret disciple. And before we throw Joseph of Arimathea under the bus for being a secret disciple, he comes out of the closet when it really counts. He's not secret anymore. He has been, and you can take him to task someday on that if you'd like to. Wasting your time, but... He's not secret anymore. Look, look at verse 58. This man, a Jewish religious leader went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That's strange on all kinds of levels. It certainly underscores the legitimacy of his discipleship. Because he, he, he's now going to go uh, to Pilate as one of the Jewish religious leaders who in effect said, we need to kill Jesus, even though he wasn't a part of that. Then verse 58 goes on to say, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Pilate said, okay. Mark's account tells us that before he says, okay, Pilate made sure that Jesus was dead, which becomes important. But he knows that he's dead. Okay, I'll release the body. Verse 59 says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Verse 60, And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out or carved out in the rock. And again, that just tells us, boy, Joseph of Arimathea was the real deal. Because he not only was willing to go to Pilate, which was a risky thing to do, but he also gave up his, if you will, to borrow from what we would say, his mausoleum. That would have cost a lot of money. That would have not only been for him, it would have been for his whole family. And now that he's going to let Jesus, who's been convicted as a criminal and a blasphemer, him to be buried in that, it's now unclean. He can't use it for anyone other than Jesus. So it cost him something. Not only that, here we ha- we're at Passover and he's going to go and take the dead body, which is not kosher for a Jew. There's all kinds of risk involved. There's all kinds of issues involved, which underscores the legitimacy of Joseph's faith. But that's not what's really important in this passage. What's important in this passage is what it says about Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. What's really important is, by this happening in the providence of God, through Joseph of Arimathea being a believer and offering his, what I call mausoleum, his cave, his burial ground to Jesus, he is now able to be buried in a rich man's grave, whereas he should have been, based upon Roman law, either left there to hang and die and be eaten, or to respect the Jews, taken down and thrown into a group grave or just thrown into Gehenna, the the local garbage dump. 
Why doesn't it happen that way? It doesn't happen that way because prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Isaiah 53. So the burial exalts the uniqueness of Christ and the supremacy of Christ as well. Verse 60 goes on to say, And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. I love it that John 19.39 tells us that Nicodemus helped, which is pretty cool. So you've got the two religious leaders of Judaism helping to bury Jesus and become defiled themselves, if you will, by handling a dead body. Well, their commitment to Christ, who has now torn the veil, is more significant than their commitment to human religion. Finally, number seven. Seventh supernatural event that highlights the supremacy of Christ in His death, and let's call it opposition. Opposition. Jesus has been opposed at every turn. He's dead now. You think they would let up. No, he's not going to be, opposed. He's not going to be uh, let off the hook yet. Look at verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, which is another way of saying the Sabbath. I don't know why he chose to put it that way, but he did. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Okay, Jewish religious leaders on the Sabbath meeting with Pilate. That's not kosher either. This is not something that they want, want their quote-unquote flocks to know about. But since they're up to no good, it shouldn't surprise us because this is consistent with what they've been doing all along. So they have a private meeting with Pilate, and then we see what happens. And said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Now, for free, let me just tell you, it's pretty amazing to me that the religious leaders remember that, and his own disciples don't even remember that. Go figure. I don't know why. Verse 64. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go. Make it as secure as you know how. And I know some of your translations put it in a command. Take a guard as if one of my guards. It seems to be more literal to take it the way uh, other translations put it as my translation puts it. You have a guard. Go. Make it as secure as you know how. That is to say, okay, I give you the green light to go and do it, but I'm not going to give you any manpower to do it. You have temple guards. You know what? I'm done with this. You go. Take your temple guard and you have... You have my support. You go and do it. But he does distance himself a bit. And then it says in verse 66, finally, and they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Here's my question for you. Is that bad or good what just happened there? Trick question, right? Those guys violate kosher law, go to meet with Pilate and say, that deceiver, that's not good, is it? They're calling Jesus a deceiver? That deceiver said he was going to rise again from the dead, so what we want you to do is go post a guard there and seal the grave. And he says, well, I'm not going to do it, but you can do it yourself. And yeah, go ahead, you can go do it. And so they seal the grave. That's good or bad? I hope you're thinking that's bad. And I hope you're thinking that's good, right? It's both. The opposition highlights the supremacy of Christ. I'm so glad they did it. I'm so glad that Romans 8.28 is true, that God causes all things to work together for good. I am so glad that Ephesians chapter 1 is true. God works 
all things after the counsel of his will. God is taking bad guys up to no good. We know they're up to no good. They call Jesus a deceiver. And, and he's using them in their badness, doing their bad deeds to ultimately accomplish something great. He's hoax-proofing the resurrection. We want that grave to be sealed and signed and delivered, right? We want ultimate guards to be there. We, we want it to be sealed as tight as possible. And in effect, that's what they're seeking to do. We love that. Because when Jesus rises from the dead, it just underscores the legitimacy of it. So associated with his death is this final point of badness. But God is able to work through badness, if you will, to bring about goodness. I'm so thankful God is in charge and God is sovereign. Next week we do resurrection. Praise God we made it. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for our time as we've been impressed with Jesus. We're impressed that you are absolutely in charge of our salvation from start to finish, even before time begins. Thank you that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Thank you that Jesus is the king, that Jesus has power over the grave, that Jesus, with a great exclamation point, put an end to all human religion or sacrifice. That his blood is a sufficient atonement so that we might be forgiven and reconciled and justified and sanctified and ultimately glorified. We love you. We love you because of what you've done on our behalf through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.